Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. You'll find it uh, in our Pew Bibles on page 901, and it's John chapter 15 this morning, and I'll be reading from verse 1 through to verse 8, John 15, and page 901 in the Pew Bibles. And as we come now to God's Word, let's pray together. Our Father, would you soften our hearts so that through your Word, by your Holy Spirit, we would hear the voice of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, friends, John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, let's hear God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Do please sit down. Well, this is, uh, going to be, uh, uh, this is going to be my last sermon for a little while. I'm traveling back to England for some vacation. We're going to spend a bit of time in the north of England with uh, my wife's uh, side of the family and then uh, go down to the south uh, with uh, my side of the family. Uh, I'll be here next weekend, but Phil will be preaching. It's a summer celebration, great event, but I won't be preaching next weekend, though I'll be here. So this is the last time I'll be in the pulpit for coming back uh, late summer, early fall. I'll have a bit of study time and then back into the pulpit late summer, early fall. And uh, this passage um, concludes our series in the Bible Explained. And uh, as we look into it, I'm, I'm reminded of how grateful I am for all of you and for our study together over the last uh, few years, the last year. And uh, I'm going to miss you when I'm away. I'll be praying for you, and I'm looking forward to coming back. And as we come uh, now to this, uh, this uh, conclusion of this series that I've enjoyed so much studying with you, uh, we've been looking at the basic core doctrines and practices of the Christian faith, creation, fall, redemption, and then the practices, uh, church, uh, work, family, and then this morning, abiding. So let me introduce for you the point of this passage, John 15, and the theme of abiding like this. Uh, Some of you know that I used to play rugby. You perhaps saw that an old friend of mine posted a Facebook uh, photograph of me from 1980, whatever it was, playing rugby. And uh, anyway, I used to play rugby when I was younger and just a little bit stronger. Uh, Rugby is a brutal game, but lots of fun if you like that kind of thing. It requires some athletic skill, a little bit of footballing skill as it's called, as well as the, uh, uh, the will to risk life and limb. 
Anyway, this last game of the season had arrived. It had been a reasonably successful season, the second half anyway. And the last game was meant to be fun, really, a sort of exhibition game for us and for anyone who was watching. And, and so there we were. And we were expected to win, but we weren't taking it that seriously. We were playing around. And I remember that uh, the thing was that we, by half time, were losing badly. And so I still remember the moment when the team in the half-time huddle got together and suddenly one of the big characters in the team and actually in some ways the more imposing physical specimens uh, spoke and I can't remember exactly what he said and if I could, I could not repeat it. (laughs) But the the general gist of it was, hey guys, get serious, you know, with a good deal of physical threat from him if we did not. And the second half was completely different from the first half, and we smashed them. Good times. (laughs) Now, usually this passage is looked at as a sort of passive, quiet, restful piece, and there is that to it. But the real question that this passage is answering in the context of John's gospel and of the theme of the Bible as a whole is The results question. Where is the fruit? Where does success come from? You see, the image that's being used, that of the vine and bearing fruit, is a common image for Israel in the Old Testament. Over and over again, this image is used, and yet every time when it is used, the answer is that the fruit has been disappointing every time. That's the answer. It's halftime, and it looks like there's no win on the board. The score is down. Where's the fruit coming from? And Jesus is answering that question. You see, John's gospel, here's the context as we just kind of parachute into John's gospel. John's gospel is all about who Jesus is and how we are to believe in him. And so if you look at John chapter 20, verse 31, you turn that up if you like, you can see there that John specifically tells us why he wrote uh, this gospel. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's why the whole book is written, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing have life in his name. And that's also why then John chapter 15 is written. It fits into that general intention. And in particular, this section is answering the question, well, it's the farewell discourse. So Jesus is, is, is going to die. And if he's going to leave the disciples, and if they're going to be left without him, does that not mean that his whole project has failed? Where is the fruit? And the answer is no, because uh, Jesus explains the Holy Spirit of Jesus has been sent to be with the disciples. So it would actually be even better now, for they will be in him and he in them, and they will do greater works, that is, carry on the mission even without him and For now they have the Holy Spirit of Jesus with them, and so there will be fruit. And then also in the larger context of the Bible, then where's where's the fruit of God's covenant people? If they are so special, and Abraham was called by God, and they entered the promised land, and they are divine, and they're expecting to bear fruit, well, where is that fruit? 
Why did they go into exile? Why are the Romans now occupying the land? And Jesus is answering all that by saying something about himself. That is that he is the true vine. And saying that if we remain in him, then we will bear much fruit. And that this will be to his Father's glory. And show that we are his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. See, So that's the whole point of this passage and its purpose. And of course then the payoff, the practical application then for us is abide in Jesus. Remain in him. Now this morning we're simply going to do three things. First we're going to explore the picture that Jesus uses. This picture is quite deliberate and we need to enter into that picture and see it and let it fill our imaginations. So we'll do that and then we will underline its point of showing that Jesus is the Christ by drawing out the theological truth of the picture that Jesus paints. And then we'll look at the application for us today. So that's where we're going. First, explore with me the picture of the vine, the vine dresser, the branches, the fruits. And it's all a picture and we need, Jesus deliberately paints it and we need to try and imagine it and see it clearly. And therefore get out of the sort of over-familiarity that probably some of us have with this kind of passage to really picture it as Jesus intended. And to do that we need to do two things. One, get a little bit familiar with the background biblical context and then dive into the pictures themselves here in relation to that context. So, one, the background, biblical context. And there are many passages in the Old Testament that use this metaphor and give us this context. Perhaps the best and easiest to grasp is Psalm 80. So turn with me to that passage in your Bibles. And Psalms are roughly speaking in the middle of the Bible. Just open in the middle and you'll be in the Psalms or if not Proverbs, something like that. And then find number 80. And you'll very quickly see that Psalm 80 is a prayer for restoration. So verse 7, restore us, O God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And then he repeats at the end that same prayer for restoration, verse 19. And then in between is this picture of the vine. So look how it explains it in verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. So this goes right back to the story of God's redemption of his people rescuing them from Egypt. But who did he rescue? a vine. So God planted this vine in the promised land. And the vine image is probably used because the promised land was famous for its facility with growing vines. And so then God, like a good vine grower, cleared the ground. He took the stones away from it and took the vine and planted it and it took roots and it filled the land and spread as far as the Mediterranean and to the Euphrates River. So that's what happened. But then from verse 12 on comes the question. Well, what went wrong? If something did go wrong, where is the fruit? So the psalmist knows that God is in charge, and so God must have a plan. And God has done this, but again, he's asking for then God to return to them, verse 14, this restoration, to watch over this vine. Where is the fruit? Watch over it, Lord. And then, for those of us who know the New Testament, our ears will be alerted to this switch of metaphors, the Son you've raised up, and again verse 17, the Son of Man, you've raised up for yourself. So this image of the vine for Israel and the question about fruit carries on then in many places in the Bible actually. Isaiah chapter 5, the song of the vineyard. So the prophet says, I'll sing a song for the one I love, God that is, a song about His 
vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. And he took care of it, but it yielded only bad fruit. Why? Or Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. I have planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. So this was a good vine, as a contemporary vine grower might say. It was a good varietal, you see. How, though, then, did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? Where is the fruit? Or Ezekiel 15 asks, if all that the vine now is good for is wood, then it's no better than any other kind of wood that can just be used for fire to keep you warm. Where is the fruit? Ezekiel 19, verse 10, they were a good vine, fruitful, but were uprooted, so where's the fruit now? Hosea 10 verse 1, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. Note the irony of the prophet Hosea, for himself, not for God. And as his fruit increased, so did his altars, that is to idolatry. Where is the fruit? And so Jesus now comes in John 15, explaining his, his life and ministry to the disciples in the context of his farewell discourse And he comes and he says in the Gospels he is the Son of Man, or in particular here, that he is the true vine. He's saying these promises given to God's Son, to the vine, are now all fulfilled in him, all the fruitfulness promised, I am the true vine, he says. It's all going to be worked out in me, in relationship to me, by connection to me, through me, because of me. I'm the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. So this is the last of Jesus' I am statements in John's gospel, and in some ways the climax, Jesus is the true vine. Now then, with that background in mind, let's explore these pictures of vine, vine dresser, branches, fruit. You see, vines are are very unimpressive looking stumps in winter. They're gnarled and look almost dead. And they have to be pruned just as they come into the springtime. Jesus uses this particular picture, pruning. They need to be thinned so that the grapes get maximum nutrients and don't rot on the branches by being too close uh, together. Rigorous pruning produces vigorous growth. And perhaps, my friend, you feel like you are being pruned this morning Or to use another biblical description for it more prosaically, disciplined, Hebrews 12. Or maybe you're just going through a hard time. You're not sure what God is up to. Bruce Milne, a commentator on this passage, says, The harder the pruning, the greater the fragrance and beauty which will later be released. Big bunches of grapes. (laughs) Or maybe, uh, you know, this metaphor, look at it from a different angle slightly. One of of the great joys of having children is being able to give them presents, simple things that they enjoy. This can come with a downside, especially at Christmas or birthday, when you open the present that you carefully wrapped but did not notice the words on the presents beforehand, those words that every father dreads more than any other, some assembly required. Or perhaps even worse, batteries not included. And then comes the frantic scramble with the instructions written in Martian. (laughs) And discovering that the kind of battery not included is one that's sold on Neptune. 
Well, Jesus is saying that somehow or other, trying to run your life without Him, trying to be successful without your relationship to Him being correct, and whether that attempt to do so is in a religious way, coming to church but keeping a compartment of your life not connected to Him, or a secular way of doing it, and you're just here because someone's invited you to church this morning, it's not your normal habit. Some ways it doesn't much matter. He's saying there's no possibility of fruit of any kind unless you are a branch of Him, the vine. That's the only way, he's saying. Without me, you can do nothing. Batteries not include. Nothing lasting, nothing that will bear fruit. So that's where the picture is leading us. Jesus is the true vine, therefore remain in Him abide in Him. Now, before we apply that, we need to make sure we have the theological truth of this passage accurate in our minds and in our understanding. So, first, the picture of the vine. Second, the theological truth which this picture teaches. So, is this picture teaching us that we should chill and not worry? Certainly, worry is something that we're to resist, though appropriate biblical concern is legitimate and godly people have appropriate biblical concerns to situations. And uh, we're not uh, to be like my dearly godly grandmother used to say, I'm so worried about how much I am worrying, you know. And so there's something about that here, isn't there? John Stott's mentor, a man who delighted under the nickname Bash, had as one of his phrases when asked a question that elicited worry, he used to say, just abide, man, referring, I presume, to this passage. And so, yes, I think there is an antidote to worry here. It does help to counter what C.S. Lewis called that gnat-like cloud of petty anxieties and decisions about the conduct of the next hour that have interfered with my prayers more often than any passion or appetite, whatever. So there is that here, but is that the heart of this passage? Perhaps mentioning prayer, the heart of this passage is teaching us to pray. And certainly prayer is a component here. Uh, verse, uh, if you remain in me and my word, verse 7, you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And we need our prayers removed from the superstition wonderfully illustrated by one Peanuts cartoon that said that Linus had discovered that if he held his hands upside down when he prayed, he got the opposite of what he prayed for. We all need to realize that what we will, when that is brought into line with what God wills by the fact of His Word revealing that will and therefore remaining in us His Word, then we can ask for whatever we wish and it will be done for us. And that can release us from the expectation that can lead to the disappointment of a yes answer to all our prayers when God has not promised any such thing. Like the student who turned over his test and prayed as he did so and answered the question, oh God, please let Paris be the capital of England, you know. A prayer probably not answered, you know. No, instead thy will be done. And we realize that through growing maturity, that God's will is best, and that our best is achieved, therefore, by insight into that will through His Word, and therefore, submission to that will by the work of the Spirit in prayer and in life. Yes, prayer is certainly here, but I think we would be hard-pressed to say that this passage is about prayer, or that is the underlying and thorough theological truth that this passage is explaining. 
Perhaps then this passage is teaching us of the importance of the Bible. And certainly Jesus defines what it means to abide in him by abiding in his words. And such words are the exposition and articulation of the word, which first cleanses us and incorporates us into the vine, and then we're to stay in those words, that word. This seems to be much closer to what Jesus is saying, and of course itself is a key lesson. So the fact that Jesus in this farewell discourse is telling us that the Holy Spirit will come and therefore will be somehow better for us being in Him and He in us, uh, John 17, does not mean that we should ever put the work of the Holy Spirit against the Word of the Holy Spirit. We must never say, God says, unless we're reading what God has said. Oh, the Holy Spirit will lead the disciples into all truth, John 14, Jesus has promised, and this truth will be recorded for us in the Bible, the New Testament, and we are then, as this morning, to give devoted attention to Jesus' words as we read the Bible, which the apostles wrote or confirmed in one way or another through the work of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised. So the Bible is living. It is, it is the voice of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, the voice of Jesus <laughs> As Martin Luther put it once, the Bible is alive. It has hands and grabs hold of me. It has feet, runs after me. Oh, yeah, these emphases are certainly here, and they certainly preach well. Don't worry. Prayer, the Word, and they can be preached appropriately, like D.L. Moody saying that some men's prayers need to be cut short at both ends and set on fire in the middle. Or Spurgeon showing young seminary students around his church to the boiler room. That is the prayer meeting. 700 people praying. That's our boiler room. Yes, and the Bible and all that is to be preached from here. But is that the heart of it? After all, after this passage that we just read out, Jesus from verse 9 to verse 16 talks about love, loving each other, and obedience Obeying his commands, he also points forward to the source of his spiritual vitality for all who will remain in him, his loving death on the cross. So he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so we might say the cross is at the heart of this passage. And we would surely be right because the cross is at the heart of every passage in the whole Bible in some shape or form. But what particular aspect of the cross is here in view? Why this mention of the word in this way? Why this mention of prayer in this way? Why this emphasis on remaining, abiding here? Why this particular mention of love meaning obedience to his word, his commands in this place? Because the point that Jesus is making is that he, underlined, is the true vine. That's the theological truth. It's a picture of what he said in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Thomas, and then Philip, and then Judas, not Iscariot, all asking questions about that. And he says, picking up on this well-known picture of Israel as the vine of the well-known question, where is the fruit? To say, I am the true vine. So, whose word are we to keep? Jesus's. Whose love? Jesus's. What will assure the efficacy of our prayers? 
Jesus' words. What kind of fruit are we to bear? Jesus-like fruit, showing us to be ourselves to be His disciples, taking after His nature and character. Who gives us all this fruit? Only Jesus, and therefore God the Father is glorified. Whose joy will we have, verse 11? Jesus' joy. See, this in some ways is the most Christocentric passage in the New Testament. Be like someone taking the stars and stripes and saying, I am the true flag. He takes this well known image of the people of God and says, I am the true vine, remain in me. So that's the picture, that's the theological truth. Now, third and finally, the application. Well, Jesus tells us specifically what that is remain in Him, abide in Him. In Him, Jesus is the true vine. That's the picture, the theological truth underlining that. Therefore, application, abide in Him. But how? Well, Jesus also explains that here in a number of ways. Here they are. One, believe in Him. So this is the word that cleanses Jesus Himself. Become a follower of Jesus today. It's all fulfilled in Him. Now, my friend, Jesus is not asking you to vote for a certain political party or adopt certain cultural values or become a certain kind of person who likes certain kind of things. He is asking you to accept His Word that cleanses, the Word of the cross. Jesus who gave His life that whoever believes in Him should be cleansed from all all their sins, believe in Him, to remain in Him. Well, Jesus tells us this remains remaining in His words. So, read the Bible, believe the Bible, obey the Bible. This is Jesus' Word. Now, I know there may be all sorts of sophisticated nuances that we could introduce at the appropriate time, discussion about Nag Hammadi or Qumran or hermeneutical subtleties related to cultural changes and all the rest, but Jesus is asking us to accept this Word as His Word. Remain in Him by His Word. Three, obey Him. Fruitfulness is not an option. It is an expectation. So he says, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. So however we put it together theologically, however we understand the branches not fruitful thrown into the fire, there's no doubt that over and over again, Jesus tells us that we are to obey Him practically and morally. You are my friends if you do what I command. So we are not at liberty to call ourselves His friends if we do not do what He commands. It's a requirement, a necessity. Now, none of us is perfect, and Jesus knows that. That's why we need cleansing. But every branch that is in Him 
has some fruit on it. For except pruning. It's fascinating when I've done a little research on it this week, finding out more about vines and and, uh, vineyards, both historically and and contemporaneously as well. You, you, You watch a grape grower prune a vine. It really looks vicious. They, they cut them right back. It doesn't look like there's much left. And then, because of it, grapefruit. I don't know about you, but I found that time and time again in my life, the hardest things, if rightly received, not received with bitterness, but if rightly received, the hardest things, lead to the most fruitful seasons. So perhaps you are being pruned. Would you accept it as a loving method from the, the vine dresser, the gardener, the father, a loving method of you bearing even more fruit in the right season? Five, of course, abide So how do I bear fruit? How do I become more like Christ? What will cause us to be closer to Christ will cause us to be more fruitful for Christ. Love His Word, love to pray, love His people, love His church. Be in Him increasingly, and increasingly you will bear not just fruit, but much fruit. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this picture of the the vine, the branches, the fruit. We pray, Father, that you would help us by your word to remain in Christ, to abide in Him. And uh, we thank You for Your wonderful promise that when we do that, we will bear much fruit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.